Welcome to another edition of ABI Podcasts. I'm Sam Giordano, Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today we focus on one of the most pressing issues facing the 111th Congress and the incoming Obama administration. That is, what to do to stem the tide of several million looming foreclosures, a danger at the heart of our economic crisis. Indeed, many in Congress believe that, notwithstanding the injection of $1 trillion in new government spending to stimulate the economy, the recovery package won't be effective unless we address how to keep Americans in their homes, homes that for many are now worth less than the mortgage amount. These are people in homes they cannot afford but cannot sell because of market conditions. Unless these mortgages are modified, foreclosures are all but certain to rise perhaps to some $8 million by 2012, according to at least one estimate. A number of government options offered to date have been largely ineffective at modifying home mortgages, largely because these voluntary programs lack incentives for the key players in the complex financial structure of modern home financing. The legislative option with the most political traction today is something called the Helping Families Save Their Homes in Bankruptcy Act, Introduced by Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois, the bill would permit bankruptcy courts to modify the terms of a primary residential home mortgage via Chapter 13. This proposal cuts through the constraints that have doomed voluntary foreclosure plans and allows bankruptcy judges to reduce the mortgage amount down to the current home value at a new interest rate and extended for a longer time period. It may, however, have other not-so-favorable consequences as well. A similar proposal was defeated in the Senate last year, but after the November elections and a worsening foreclosure market has gained broad support, even from some former opponents among home builders, realtors, and even lenders like Citibank. With me today to discuss this approach and an alternative that they have developed are two scholars from Columbia. Christopher Mayer is Senior Vice Dean and Paul Milstein Professor of Real Estate at the Columbia Business School, and Edward Morrison is a Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. Welcome to you both, and thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Let's talk about your proposal right at the outset. Uh, Your proposal to modify home mortgages is quite different from the Durbin Bill that I um, briefly described, both... uh, uh, different philosophically and different practically. Uh, and so the first question is why? What's wrong with providing borrowers frustrated with mortgage servicers with some leverage to get the lender's full attention? So I, I think the biggest problem with the bill, with the idea of bankruptcy cramdowns, is that they really won't do what the sponsors believe. On one hand, we think that servicers might well prefer to modify loans inside a bankruptcy as opposed to outside a bankruptcy because the typical pooling and servicing agreement provides reimbursement for costs of servicers inside judicial proceedings, which we think would include 
include um, bankruptcy hearings. So on one hand, servicers might like cram downs. Um, the second problem is that cram downs enormously increase the cost of future borrowing, which is something that is often downplayed by advocates of cram downs, but is something that we think is quite serious, and I think there's clear evidence um, that taking away lenders' rights leads to higher cost of capital um, in the future, and this will just make it more difficult to recover from the housing crisis. Um, Ed, you want to go with your line? Well, there are a couple of things that we can talk about as well. Chris hinted at the idea that we might have um, a large increase in bankruptcy filings if cram down is permitted because servicers will, given the choice between modifying outside of bankruptcy and modifying inside bankruptcy, will prefer to do it in bankruptcy because their costs are covered in bankruptcy under the terms of most pooling and servicing agreements. Outside of bankruptcy, the servicer is not compensated for the costs, which can range from $750 to $1,000 per loan to pursue a modification. Those costs are potentially covered in bankruptcy. So we could see that the cram down uh, legislation could lead to a dramatic increase in bankruptcy filings. But this is, not, this is one of many reasons why we might think that bankruptcy filings would rise. Um, one is that we fear that we could have too many modifications. Servicers tell us that though we see a foreclosure crisis, not all foreclosures should be averted, that perhaps only up to 30% of all foreclosures should instead uh, lead to loan modification in the sense that there are about 30% of foreclosures that um, um, should be should not go to uh, in case there are about thirty percent of uh, foreclosures in which more value would be obtained by investors um, and uh, homeowners would be better off both parties would be better off through a loan modification but that implies that there are seventy percent of the foreclosures out there where foreclosure is actually a good idea because the homeowner will is unable under her current income or her current assets to ever make payments that are sufficient to cover the um, current market value of the home. But what we worry about is cram down. with cram down is that, that many people will be seeking bankruptcy relief, even if it's maybe not a sensible idea. So we could see that, um, that instead of having 30% of foreclosures be averted, we might see 50, 60% of foreclosures be averted via cram down in bankruptcy. And that would be a real problem because it would essentially just delay the foreclosure crisis into the future. We would have people whose homes I probably should go into foreclosure today instead going into foreclosure two or three years from now. So we could have our current foreclosure crisis just extend many years into the future. Now, it's, it, one response would be that, well, this assumes that judges are not adept in um, identifying who should, who is uh, eligible for bankruptcy relief, who, sh who should enjoy the cram down. Now, we don't want to say whether judges are good or bad at that, but the statistic is that a lot of Chapter 13 plans fail, up to about two-thirds of them. So there is this risk that many people will seek Chapter 13 relief, enjoy the cram down when it may not be a good idea. Furthermore, we worry about the fact that cram down may be just too, too aggressive, that the Durban bill contemplates the reduction of principal um, down to the current fair market value of the home, the reduction of interest down to the um, conventional rate plus a risk adjustment determined by the court, and perhaps an extension of the duration of the mortgage. Now, it's not obvious that, that these are the optimal modifications. It, it's quite possible, and, and we actually are learning from servicers, that there are a variety of techniques out there for uh, modifying a loan that are far less aggressive. Um, and we might 
So whereas modification done by a servicer might be less aggressive than modification done in bankruptcy court, um, which means that, put differently, that the losses to investors will be much larger if modification is done in bankruptcy. And as losses to investors grow, well, that means that, inve- that investors don't lend as much in the future, which goes back to Chris's first point. And I guess one last point we, we, we think is worrisome about the Durbin Bill is that it effectively contemplates a one-size-fits-all approach to loan modification. It gives the judge three tools, and it seems, and I would suspect that in practice, all three would be used in all cases. But we know from the experience of servicers in the real world that the tools they use are not threefold. They're actually manifold, and there are many different combinations that are used for different kinds of situations, and that the kind of tools that are appropriate depend a lot on information about the borrower. You know, one thing you might wonder is whether um, that, you know, whether the, the bankruptcy process is, um, is uh, adept at bringing in the kind of expertise needed to identify the optimal modification that allows homeowners to keep and stay in their homes, but reduces the burden as much as possible on investors. Your uh, proposal, your option is aimed at incentivizing the servicer uh, component uh, of the financing structure, uh, how, would it, how would it work? How would they be incentivized to modify mortgages? Do you want to take that, Chris? Sure. So the servicers under the, the Durbin Bill, of course, provides no incentive for servicers to modify loans. And we know that servicers, it costs them money to modify every loan, and effective modifications are very expensive. You have to reappraise the house. You have to, you know, verify um, income. You know, if you want the modification to work, you have to cost a lot of time and money. The Durbin Bill provides no incentive to modify other than supposedly the idea that, well, gee, if I go to, ba- if I go to bankruptcy, then you're going to want to modify my loan. Um, in the other popular proposal is an FDIC proposal prepared by um, Chairwoman Sheila Bear, and that proposal offers to pay servicers $1,000 per loan modification. Mm-hmm. But the problem is we know that most modifications fail. And under that proposal, the $1,000 payment is for reducing the borrower's payments by 10%. But if it, re, if it fails again, then the servicer hasn't really done any good because we've just lowered somebody's payments a little bit. They fail again. The taxpayers are out $1,000. But we haven't, really put, we haven't really stopped the foreclosure from happening. I mean, the taxpayers are affirmatively worse off because of the loss sharing under the FDIC plan, right? That's right. So the, the FDIC plan, a second component is that taxpayers would share in half of the losses from a modified loan. Now, to protect taxpayers a little bit, that provision of the law requires that you make six months of payments before the loss sharing provision goes into effect. But... Nonetheless, there's very significant exposure for taxpayers under the loss sharing. And there's no real incentive for effective modifications. There's just incentives to modify. Because, again, the servicer is an agent. The servicer isn't a principal. So guaranteeing half of the loan doesn't help the servicer. It does help investors. 
And one of the big problems here is the servicers are now not acting in the interests of investors. Mm-hmm. Under our proposal, the whole idea is to align the interests of servicers and investors. So we do that through economic incentives by giving servicers a share of the payments that come in from the borrower. So under our proposal, the servicer would receive 10% of the payments capped at $60 a month. So if you modify a loan, instead of getting $1,000 up front and nothing after that, under our proposal, you get $60 a month for three years. Now, and, and you should note that we chose, you might ask why we chose $60 as the cap and how we, how we set that number. Well, it was based on conversations that suggested that the incentive fee in our proposal is one that doubles or triples the fee that servicers ordinarily receive. So the servicers are getting paid more for doing modifications, but of course, the, the point at which they get paid $1,000 occurs 15 months into the plan. So the, the power in our plan is that the loan has to be going for 15 months before you hit $1,000, but then if it continues going after that, you would continue to receive the $60 for up to three years. If the person repays early, you still get 12 months worth of payments as a servicer because obviously investors are very much like a prepayment because they're getting a lot of cash. So our proposal much more closely aligns the interests of of servicers with investors because what investors want is continued payments. And in our plan, servicers get paid when payments come in to investors. Well, what about the the borrower? what well, that's what I think is, that's what I was going to emphasize. I think it's very important to emphasize that our proposal not only aligns incentives between servicers and lenders, but it fosters cooperation between lenders and homeowners. Because remember that the lenders, what well, we're focusing, and it's important to emphasize that we're zeroing in on privately securitized loans. These loans represent only about 15% of outstanding mortgages, but they account for over half of foreclosure starts. They're sort of at the heart of the problem with our current foreclosure crisis. Now, we, we're dealing, and we're also dealing, and we're only focusing on situations. And we, we said this at the beginning, where modifying a loan will be better for everyone relative to foreclosure. Obviously, foreclosure harms the homeowner; she loses her home. It harms investors because the sale value from a foreclosure is usually far below uh, market value, and and maybe far below the value that can be obtained from modifying the loan. So we're focusing on those situations where modification makes sense. Now, when modification makes sense, you'd think that in an ideal world, homeowners and their lenders would get together and say to each other, foreclosure makes no sense in this, in this situation. Let's modify the loan. Let's change the principle. Let's change the interest. Let's change the duration. Do something so that everybody's made better off relative to foreclosure. Now, we live in a world with securitization where that's not possible. Lenders are widely dispersed. There are thousands of them. They can't coordinate not only because of their sheer number, but because they have very different interests. Some have interest in principal, some in in interest rates, uh, payments on the interest. So what we do to solve this coordination problem that disables cooperation between homeowners and lenders is that we zero in on the servicer and empower the servicer to act on behalf of lenders and to act in a way that fosters cooperation and at the same time makes everybody better off. But if I'm the borrower, what assures me that I'm going to end up with a modification that's affordable. Who determines? Who determines 
what's what's affordable. Uh, it's like for a servicer, the, our plan gives the servicer strong incentives to figure out what you can afford, because in our plan, the servicer receives none of these uh, payments, these bonuses, unless the loan stays on the books, avoids foreclosure. So servicers have very strong incentives because they make money. They can make profit by keeping loans ongoing, by avoiding foreclosure. So it's in the servicer's best interest to figure out what you as the homeowner, you as the borrower, can pay. And also it, to balance it against with the interest of the investors. Now, it's obvious that a homeowner could pay. Uh, you, one way of ensuring that, what, that the homeowner can pay the mortgage is to reduce the mortgage to an incredibly low value. But that would hurt the investors by reducing the value of the mortgage to a dramatically low level. So, what the service and, and we give these servicers strong incentives not to do that because we say that the servicer gets a fee that's proportional to the monthly payments made by the homeowner. So, the servicer has a simultaneous balancing going on where the servicer wants to figure out how what how low do payments have to be to assure that the homeowner can make those payments, um, and. And how and, and how low how high can the payments be to minimize the damage on the investors? So it's sort of this balance that that, that the servicer does wants to lower the payments just enough to allow the homeowner to uh, to make good on the mortgage. And that's, by the way, exactly what a portfolio lender does with their own loans. And this is, in some sense, our belief that servicers have not been acting the way a lender would with their own loans. And what we want to do is to generate incentives for the servicer to do that. And that's what we think we've built. When portfolio lenders are modifying their own loans because they can, they don't have this uh, impediment of the other legal obligation uh, to other third-party investors, what, uh, to what extent are those loans being modified typically? Are they being reduced to fair market value or some number higher than that? So one of the things that I think Ed pointed out nicely in his comments earlier, and I'm also going to refer, this, this proposal is joint work with another professor at Columbia, Tomek Piskorski. Um, and Tomek has done a very interesting study along with um, Professor Vikrant Vig and Amit Siru at the University of Chicago, is that private portfolio lenders have foreclosure rates that are 20 to 30% lower than the foreclosure rates of servicers on loans when they become delinquent. And so we think, while the study doesn't or isn't able to go into the detail because there's really not data on looking at what portfolio lenders do. One of Ed's comments earlier is that portfolio lenders just have a host of tools. One of the ones which we think is really important is a, is a tool called forbearance. Under forbearance, you might take somebody who owes $200,000 on their house. The house may be worth one fifty. The lender will pursue forbearance, which is to say they will reduce the amount of the loan that you're paying interest on from 200 to 150. They may also reduce the interest rate on that loan. So if you were to default, it would really cost you, you know, it would, you, would be, you wouldn't be doing very well because your cost on your home under forbearance would be very similar to what it would be to buy another home or to rent an equivalent property. So the lender reduces your monthly payments 
but to protect the lender, the lender still has a loan on the book. So when property values go up again, which surely they will over time, we hope that the lender is protected and receives some portion of the capital gains back again. So forbearance is a policy that's strictly better for investors. And from a owner's perspective, it allows them to stay in the house and avoids foreclosure. So that's the kind of a tool that a private lender can use with its own portfolio, but is either ruled out or there are no incentives to do this with current pooling and servicing agreements. Chris, uh, uh, you had uh, mentioned earlier about the uh, impact on the cost of future borrowing uh, as a result of, of something like uh, the, uh, the bankruptcy solution. Uh, I'd like to get into some of the uh, evidence for that, if you will, particularly in, in the light of the advocates for the Durban Bill pointing out that because it is limited to loans already outstanding, not future loans made after it becomes law, that um, it, it would not raise future borrowing costs. Can you, can you address what evidence you have on the cost of future borrowing? Sure. Um, I think there are several reasons to believe that this really would impact the cost of future borrowing. The first is, and I think the, at least some of the people pushing this proposal have been honest about this, they've wanted to see this for a long time. And many people do not view this. And you can see with different iterations of the Durban bill that while we applied it for all loans, then we only apply it for these loans. There are many people who believe that applying bankruptcy cram down is something that we should do all the time. Right. So I think whether or not the legislation does it, it fundamentally changes the rules in a way that there's going to be an enormous pressure on Congress to continue to extend. Why do you want someone who took out a loan tomorrow to get kicked out of their house when someone who took a loan yesterday doesn't. That's the political rhetoric, and that's going to be very appealing. The second thing is that by imposing much larger losses in the financial system, bankruptcy cramdowns effectively delay recovery from the crisis. And by extending the crisis, we're essentially harming credit for everybody, not just houses, but all credit, into the future. The third thing is just to point to, you know, you know, do, does this really raise the cost of credit? Some people have referred to the study by Professor Levitin at, um, at Georgetown University. And that study, which is a co-authored study, one of the things that's clear in that is that if you look at his results carefully, um, it's really been misreported. His results don't find increasing credit. In fact, his results show both that for groups of borrowers, the cost of borrowing was higher, and that loan-to-value ratios in places that allowed cram-downs were lower. In other words, lender would, lenders would lend less money. That result has certainly been confirmed in a study that I think is a much better done study by Karen Pence that looks at the speed of recovery from foreclosures. And Karen finds similar things, which is places which extend the um, foreclosure process, thereby limiting the rights of lenders, people can borrow less money. 
So this really is about reducing access to credit for people in the future, raising borrowing costs, and extending the crisis. Ed, uh, you had uh, raised earlier the uh, specter of a, uh, a rush uh, to file for bankruptcy um, after something like the Durban bill, making uh, bankruptcy attractive as a kind of first uh, option. Um, keep in, in mind that uh, the debtor would have to live under uh, the Chapter 13 repayment plan for three to five years and commit disposable income during that period to pay uh, unsecured creditors. There are some, there are some downsides to, to living under the regime of the Chapter 13 trustee and the jurisdiction, continuing jurisdiction of the court. What, what is your, what's the evidence, if you will, to support the idea of uh, thousands, uh, if not more, uh, people rushing uh, to bankruptcy, those who are now current on their mortgages, even if they're just temporarily upside down on their value, what's the what's the benefit to them to uh, to absorb all the costs of living under a Chapter 13 uh, straitjacket? No, to be sure, we're not saying that Chapter 13 is a um, is an attractive place to be, and it it is no doubt costly in the sense that it um, imposes a. Uh, a um, a, a, a wage earner plan, a plan dictating, um, you know, basically dictating consumption over a three to five year period, and and it can be harmful to credit re, your credit report. So, no, we're not we're not saying that that um, this is sort of uh, an, an attractive place to be. But on the other hand, that um, by we the cram the cram down legislation would make bankruptcy more attractive than the alternatives. Uh, uh, make it more attractive than the alternatives relative to how attractive bankruptcy is today. So you could say today that bankruptcy is an option, foreclosure is an option, a short sale is an option. There are many different ways to deal with distress and to um, uh, to address uh, a mortgage, a burden of a mortgage, um, and to, to deal with a home that you maybe can't afford at the current time. And the current legislation would make bankruptcy a more, a more attractive, a more attractive as 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 an option for somebody facing uh, a problem. And it's particularly attractive because it's a because it's a way to rewrite the mortgage in an aggressive way. It's an, in an aggressive way in the sense that, as Chris pointed out earlier, there's no doubt that property values will increase in the future. And if a person can go into bankruptcy, cram the mortgage down to its current value, that means that in the future any appreciation in home value is uh, goes exclusively to the borrower, to the homeowner. There's no sharing in the equity going forward. Um, so. We are making bankruptcy more attractive and for people who want to stay in their homes. And there's no doubt that most people would very much like to avoid a foreclosure. That we're saying that, and if the option is to go through foreclosure, which is a miserable process, versus going to Chapter 13, which is another miserable process, it's not hard to imagine that Chapter 13 might be seen as um, the lesser of the two evils, particularly because it allows the homeowner to stay in her home to re- and to... Um, keep any future appreciation for herself. Um, moreover, we have seen rushes to file for bankruptcy in environments where credit was uh, easy to obtain and, and the cost of bankruptcy was seen to be relatively low. That was the story of the late 1990s with respect to credit card debt. We saw a dramatic increase in the availability of credit card debt 
and a reduction, it appears, in the perception of the cost of bankruptcy. There are some empirical studies out there um, to suggest that is true, and just the raw numbers out there. The massive increase in the bankruptcy filing rate, which motivated the 2005 legislation, is uh, indicative of something going on in the environment where you see a rush to bankruptcy in an environment where um, credit was easy and debts were high and bankruptcy was seen as not so costly as an option. And we have that same, a very similar um, uh, constellation today that we have, we're, we've gone through a period where credit was very easy to obtain with respect to mortgages, and now we're considering a law that reduces the cost of filing for bankruptcy. So I don't think it's far-fetched to think that we could have a replay of what we saw in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. The, and, I mean, again, the sort of cost of this to the economy, not just to the homeowners involved, is just really substantial. You know, we, if one of the lessons we learned from, I think, the 1990s and, you know, some would say ongoing recession in Japan is that when you have problems between um, borrowers and lenders, that prompt action is really important. We don't want to drag the crisis out for years. And we don't want to set up entirely new procedures to deal with problems. We'd like to work as much as possible within what's created to resolve things more quickly. The uh, the Durbin uh, bill uh, may find itself uh, attached uh, to the massive stimulus package. Uh, the uh, this sounds so passive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's proponents, to be sure, are trying very hard uh, to get into the uh, to get into Absolutely. the package uh, with the uh, support of the um, administration and 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 obviously people who've been working on this for more than a couple of years now. If that right. happens, as a practical matter, um, it is likely uh, to uh, become law very soon. Uh, your alternative? Have you uh, found? Uh, a political support or, or traction for your alternative? I know uh, you've recently testified before um, uh, the House Financial Services Committee. Yeah, I, I testified there on Tuesday, and I'm planning on testifying at the – I've been invited to testify at the um, House Judiciary Committee on this uh, subject next week. The, and over the past week, we were asked to, to discuss a proposal with um, – of staff from five uh, senators or, or congressmen and with the, uh, the the Treasury Department. So we do think that we're getting some attention, and we hope uh, we get more of it, um, especially as the momentum for uh, cram down grows. Yeah. I should the, note we're, we're know, recording this on uh, January 15th. Uh, this situation is so fluid it may well change by the time people um, hear this, but it, it, is a, it is a very dynamic environment to be sure. Yeah. I would also point out that portions of our proposal, even having been shared with um, the House less than a week before it was written, appear in um, Section 204 and 205 of the um, TARP Reform Act that um, Chairman Frank has put before the House. So the particular parts of changing pooling and servicing agreements and using economic incentives to encourage people to um, to encourage servicers to 
do the right thing are really are really things that are gaining a lot of traction in D.C. I think our concern is is whether people do think this is a good idea. The question is, is it a substitute for bankruptcy cram down or is it in addition to bankruptcy mm-hmm. cram down? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there would be some people that may well look at this and view it as an additional thing for bankruptcy cram down. And while we think our proposal is good, there's a sense that we ought to re- it's implementable quickly. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of thing where we could do this and look back in four to six months and say, has this worked? And if it hasn't, then, you know, I think we can go look at, you know, go to the next step and say, all right, well, this isn't enough. What do we need to do next? We still think bankruptcy cram downs are a bad idea, but I also understand the political reality that we're just politicians and others aren't and shouldn't sit by while millions and millions of Americans are kicked out of their house if there's anything we can do about it. So we think it's incredibly important to, to reduce foreclosures where it's at all possible. But we'd like to do it in a way that's targeted to the problem. This addresses more than half of the foreclosures that are occurring. And to do this in a way that um, is going to be effective. Maybe this is a cost. Maybe this is a good point, Sam and Chris, to just give the listeners a, a, uh, a, a better sense of our proposal, because so far we've talked about only half of our proposal, which is the incentive plan, which in which we um, propose that uh, servicers be paid a, uh, a bonus or an incentive fee uh, uh, every month that they keep a, a mortgage ongoing for up to a three-year period. But it's half of our proposal, and the other half, it deals with barriers to modification. In some sense, so far in this conversation, at least regarding our proposal, we've talked about economic barriers to modification in the sense that modification is costly, and in the current environment, servicers don't get compensated for those costs and therefore don't find modification attractive. But even if the economic incentives were in place, there still would be legal barriers to modification. Many pooling and servicing agreements, these agreements that govern the, uh, the abilities and the duties of servicers, um, these agreements often contain restrictions that mm-hmm. um, limit the ability of the servicers to engage in uh, successful modification. These restrictions range from outright prohibitions on modification to limits on the tools that can be used to um, freedom given to the servicer to modify loans subject to a fairly vague standard that the servicer must act in the best interest of the trust. So our proposal tries to address all of these barriers which um, either restrict modification or expose the servicer to great litigation risk if it does modify. Mm -hmm. And so what we propose is that Congress enact legislation, a safe harbor, Mm -hmm. that frees servicers to modify loans, notwithstanding the provisions of the securitization agreements. Servicers will be free to ignore restrictions, outright restrictions on on modification, outright prohibitions, as well as limitations on the tools used. But they're free to ignore those, provided they act in the best interest of the trust. And we define that term in a very particular way. We say that servicers are free to modify to the extent they have a reasonable, good-faith belief that modification will increase the value of the mortgage to all investors put differently, that the modification will increase the net present value of the mortgage to investors. This is a, though, so therefore, though we're 
advocating the sort of the abrogation of terms in existing contracts, what we're doing is having Congress eliminate terms in contracts that are doing damage and doing damage to investors. And because investors can't coordinate, they can't overcome this damaging clause by themselves. So in some sense, though we're advocating somewhat unusual legislation in the sense that it's rewriting securitization mm-hmm. contracts, we're rewriting the contracts in a way that the investors would like them to be written had they thought about this ahead of time. I mean, it's almost a standard tool in contract law that judges routinely have to address contracts in which contingencies have arisen that weren't contemplated by the parties when right. they drafted the contract. Right. We've got one of those contingencies now, and we're advocating the typical solution that judges apply, which is to think about what would the parties have wanted had they thought about this ahead of time. And we think that what the parties would have wanted is to permit modification when it makes everybody better off. Okay, we will uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that aspect of the proposal too. Whether, uh, uh, as you suggest, some of these things may find their way into uh, the uh, the TARP bill, which would create a very um, interesting. Well, I should note that this safe harbor provision has already made it into the bill introduced by um, Chairman Frank. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this is the feature of our proposal that has made itself in has moved found its way into uh, a pending bill. Mm-hmm. It's our incentive plan, which is found its way in only um, half-hearted form into uh, Chairman Frank's bill, and it's one in which we hope to push harder on. Right. Well, we'll be uh, following that closely over the coming week, uh, weeks or so, and, and uh, we'll no doubt be analyzing uh, the impact for years to come. Uh, alas, we're out of time for uh, today, uh, but I want to thank our guests, for a terrific uh, discussion of the options here. Uh, Chris Meyer and Ed Morrison, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. It was a great pleasure. Uh, And we thank you, our audience, for listening. You can access the full library of ABI podcasts at our website, abi.org. Until next time, this is Sam Giordano of the American Bankruptcy Institute saying good day.